to Bovine Banter with the Penn State Extension Dairy Team. I'm Ginger Fenton, and I'm a dairy educator based in Mercer County, Pennsylvania. Joining us today is Dr. Ernest Hoving, who is part of the Penn State Extension Veterinary Team. We will be discussing mastitis management strategies in the parlor, including tools and training. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Hoving. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your role as part of the veterinary extension team? Good morning, Ginger. It's good to be here with you on Bovine Banter, and um, it's a, a, an honor to uh, be part of this series. So I'm an extension veterinarian here at Penn State, and I've been in this role now for about 18 years. And as an extension veterinarian, um, I get out to visit a lot of farms. And so I get to do that um, both in terms of extension, so teaching, um, but also field investigation. So we go out and troubleshoot herds that are having problems with mastitis and milk quality. Um, so that's a, a fun part of my role. And I've been doing that for a long time. And even before I came to Penn State, I was interested in mastitis and milk quality. I also do work in, in lameness in dairy cattle. I've spent quite a bit of time working on Yoni's disease. And then I'm also working on biosecurity, not only for the dairy industry, but for other species um, as well. Great. Thank you for the introduction. Can we start with a quick review of mastitis? What are the signs of mastitis and how do cows get mastitis? So mastitis is the inflammation of the mammary gland, and that is almost always caused by an infection of the mammary gland. So we get an infection first, um, almost always caused by bacteria, and then um, the cow develops an immune response to that, and that's when we see mastitis. Um, and so the signs of mastitis can vary. The clinical mastitis is when we see uh, changes to the udder and or the milk. And so we might see redness, heat, swelling of the udder, um, one or more of the glands might be swollen, um, they might be painful. The milk might have clots or flakes in it, or it might be watery. And those are all signs of clinical mastitis. But a cow can also be infected and have an inflammatory response, which is completely subclinical, so that we don't see any signs at all. The udder looks completely normal, the milk looks completely normal, and yet she can have a very significant infection and inflammation. And so that's called subclinical mastitis. And we have to be aware of both of those when we're developing a mastitis management program, because they can occur in any cow at any time um, in any herd. I know that you have visited many herds throughout Pennsylvania and beyond. Are there common issues that you observe in parlors? I would say that um, there are some common things. We also see a fair bit of variability between herds. But I think one of the big things that is really important in parlors and that um, needs to be stressed is training of, of milkers or milking technicians. In too many parlors, I don't think we have enough training um, being done. And so one of the problems is that the milking technicians don't understand the why and the importance of the different steps that they've been asked to do. So I think that's one thing that, that we really need to focus on um, in a lot of herds is, is making sure that that understanding is there. But the next part of that is, of course, that even if the milkers do understand what they're supposed to be doing and why they're supposed to be doing it, we still tend to see a fair bit of what we call procedural drift. And so just because somebody knows how to do it doesn't mean that they consistently continue to do that. And so we see that pretty commonly as well. And, and one of the things we'll talk about probably in a few minutes is the importance of getting the teat ends really clean. And so if we see that um, a milker is not getting a teat end clean and we scrub some teat ends, then all of a sudden the milkers seem to improve how well they're doing on getting the teat ends clean. So it seems that they know that that's an important part of the 
prep procedure, but sometimes they slack off a little bit on things like that. So I think making sure that we have the training initially, and then that we have some way to make sure that we don't have procedural drift happening um, on a regular basis are, are things that I see pretty commonly in parlors. Another thing which is a, a special interest of mine is, is milking equipment maintenance. And so some parlors are doing a great job with that, but fairly regularly, I see um, problems with the inflations or the liners that they might be twisted, they might be getting old or might be getting cracked. Um, same with the short milk tubes or the air tubes. Um, those can be getting cracked and old. That can happen. The milk hoses might be getting compressed and so that they're not maintaining their round shape. Um, those are common things that I see, um, leaks in gaskets, different things like that. So milking equipment maintenance, I think, is another thing that we really need to make sure the milkers understand what, they, what role they have to play. And then also parlor managers or herd managers need to understand that that needs to be done on a regular basis as well. Um, and how that should be done. So those are some of the common things I think that I observe. To follow up with that then, the, the role in managing mastitis in the parlor involves different tasks, just, just like we talked about, depending <laughs> on the job description of that person. To start with the milkers, um, what can they do to help manage mastitis? So uh, again, I think the, the first thing is that they really have to understand the critical role that they play in preventing new infections, as well as identifying cases of mastitis as soon as possible after they occur. And that's true, especially for clinical mastitis, but the, the milkers might also play a role in identifying subclinical mastitis. That'll vary a little bit from herd to herd, but I think it's important that the milkers understand that they do play a really critical role and they're not just robots there um, in, in the parlor, but that they, they have a special role to play um, in producing high quality milk and keeping the cows healthy. So I think that's one of the first things that, that is important to stress. And then they need to understand all the different steps that they do and how they are important part of the process of preventing mastitis and also identifying mastitis. So if we want to kind of go through it quickly here, prevention involves really an excellent udder prep. That's one of the biggest and most important parts of preventing mastitis. And those teeth have to be spotlessly clean um, before the milking unit goes on. And they have to do that by following a set series of, series of steps, including dry wiping the udder, unless they're really clean when they come into the parlor. Um, they need to put pre-dip on the teats, they need to strip the teats, um, and then they need to wipe and clean the teats properly um, as part of that procedure. Just to break that down a little bit further, the dry wipe is really to remove the vast majority of the manure and the bedding that's on the teats. Um, hopefully the teats come in really clean, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but we really need to get that organic matter off of the teats in order for the pre-dip to be effective. And so we can use one towel for more than one cow, but if that towel gets dirty, or as soon as the towel gets dirty, it really needs to be replaced. So you might actually end up using two towels or more for one cow if she has really dirty udder. Again, since we're not expressing any milk at this point, we don't have the teat end open yet, we can use one towel to uh, wipe multiple cows if they're not too dirty. Once the, the dry wipe is done, and we have those teats fairly clean already, then it's time to pre-dip. But in the process of dry wiping, the milkers also should be looking for signs of mastitis. So if they're touching a cow and she's painful or seems to kick where she doesn't usually kick when, when that um, is being done, then that maybe is an indication to look a little bit closer to see if there's something going on um, in that quarter or in that udder. Obviously, they should be looking for any red or swollen quarters, maybe hot quarters, uh, things like that. Then the next step is putting pre-dip on there. Again, the vast majority of herds are using pre-dip um, rather than using a, a wet cloth towel. There are some people that are doing that, 
but really pre-dip is, is the best way to do that. And that pre-dip really needs to cover the vast majority of the teat. So I'd really like to see 100% of the teat covered, but we can go with 80% or better. Um, but then it should be applied completely around the teat. So a sprayer can work to do that, but it's more difficult to get it done right with a sprayer um, rather than using a non-return dipper or a foamer. Um, those tend to be much easier to get full coverage of the teat. So that's kind of the pre-dip step is getting that on there. And then we're going to strip some milk from, from each of the teats. And we do that for a couple of reasons. One, it's an excellent way to stimulate milk letdown. And so um, some people say, well, my cows are going to let milk down even if I don't strip them, but their milk letdown is not nearly as good, especially for later lactation animals um, if we don't strip them. So that's important for stimulation. But then the other thing is that we're also looking for abnormal milk during the strip step. And so we should be squirting three to four squirts of milk from each quarter. Ideally, I'd like to see that put into a strip cup. Sometimes it's stripped onto the floor of the parlor, and that's probably okay because the cow's not very likely to lay down there. But we don't want to be stripping it into our hands. Even if we're wearing gloves, that does um, present some risk to transmitting bacteria that might be in the milk to the next cow. So we'd really like to strip into a strip cup or onto the floor. Don't want to rush this step. Sometimes milkers think that they maybe can get a little bit faster if they only spend three seconds stripping a cow or four seconds stripping a cow um, rather than 10 seconds. But 10 seconds seems to be kind of that magical point where uh, we really do get better stimulation and better let milk, milk letdown if we, if we strip a total of 10 seconds uh, per cow. And so three to four good squirts of milk from each quarter will get you pretty close to that 10 seconds. Again, when this is being done, look carefully for signs of mastitis and, and again, especially clinical mastitis. Then the next step is that we have a little bit of downtime. We, we let the pre, leave the pre-dip on there for a period of time. Um, and then we also need to wait enough time between when we started stripping that cow and when the milking unit goes on. And that's what we call the prep lag time. And that's time to um, allow for the oxytocin to be released into the bloodstream of the cow um, and to get good milk letdown. So again, if the milking unit gets put on too quickly, we don't get good milk letdown, we don't get good milk flow, and the milking unit is probably going to be on there longer than if we actually spend a few extra seconds stripping that cow and giving her the correct prep lag time. When we have that pre-dip off, we're going to wipe it off, hopefully with a cloth towel. That, that, that tends to be the best. You can use paper towels, but a cloth towel really works the best. Again, that towel has to be clean when you start, and you have to make sure it stays clean when it's touching the teats. So some milkers will flip the towel over um, in their hand after they've done two teats. And that's okay as long as your gloved hand is really clean when it was touching that towel, because otherwise you run the risk of having manure on the, the backside of the towel when you flip it over. And now you're wiping the teats with dirty as dirty towels. So that's not very good. In the wiping process, you have to be especially careful to make sure the teat ends get very clean. And if it's not cleaned well, then you have to go back and, and scrub that teat end again to make sure it is clean, because that's really where the risk of, of developing mastitis is if we end up with bacteria on the teat or on the teat end. Once we're finished with the, the wiping step, then it's time to attach the unit. And we really want to make sure we do that correctly with minimal air admission so that we don't get a lot of air being sucked into the system, which can drop the vacuum and potentially cause liner slips or squawks um, in other units. And we also want to make sure when we put that unit on that it's hanging squarely underneath the cow. And that's really important for a good uh, milk out and even milk out of all quarters um, of that cow. 
If we don't have it squarely underneath the cow, then we run the risk that if we have some twisting of the inflations or of the milking unit itself, that one or more of the quarters might not milk out well. And then she has a lot of residual milk left, which could mean that the unit stays on for a longer period of time than it really needs to. Or it might mean that she goes back out to the um, housing with milk left in one quarter, which is not a good thing. Then after the unit is hung onto the cow, um, we have to make sure that the milk hose is positioned correctly. And ideally, what we would like to have is that milk hose is positioned so that the milk flows by gravity from the time it leaves the teat ends until it gets to the milk line or perhaps the milk meter, assuming we have a milk meter in line there before the milk line. Um, but we'd really like to have no loops in the hose so that we're not having to lift that milk, which is going to cause vacuum fluctuations in the cloth. So once the units are hung on the cow, um, the milkers need to understand that it's also important to listen for liner slips or squawks as we call them. Um, and if they hear them, they have to fix them quickly because when that happens, that's going to increase the likelihood that we end up with bacteria getting into one of the other teats, not usually the line of the quarter that's slipping, but some of the other ones because we can get milk impacted back up onto the teat end that way. And that might uh, be causing or increase the risk for mastitis. So if the, the milkers notice that there's a lot of liner slips or squawks, so if we see more than 5% or so in a, in a uh, double 10 parlor, if more than one of the cows um, it has a liner slip, one to two of the cows, that's probably more than, than it should be acceptable. And so then we have to figure out why that's happening. So it might be that the, line, the milking units are not being put on squarely, and it might be that the hoses are not being adjusted properly, or it might be that the vacuum is just too low um, and that's causing some liner slip. So there's a number of different reasons why that is, but the milker should be aware that that should not be a normal or accepted thing to observe. Once the milking unit comes off, um, the milkers also have an important role to play. Um, they should make sure that all the quarters are milked out completely and just a visual check is okay. So again, you don't need to go and strip every quarter, but they should have a look at every udder before they post-dip the cow, just to make sure there's not a quarter that's still swollen, either due to mastitis or because she didn't get milked out. And then it's really important that they apply post-dip to every teat. And again, we'd like to see 80% or better of that teat completely covered with post-dip, because that's going to reduce the risk, especially of contagious mastitis pathogens, um, which might be on the teat skin um, after the unit comes off. So those are really some of the important roles that a, a milker or a milking technician plays um, in trying to prevent mastitis and identify mastitis in the parlor. Thank you. That was a very thorough review of the steps. I appreciate that. <laughs> and you already touched on this in one of our previous questions, but what can somebody in a management role, such as a herd person or farm owner, do to help prevent mastitis in the parlor? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And I think, again, the parlor manager or the herd manager um, plays a really important role in a number of ways. I think one of the things that they need to do is make sure that clean teats and udders are coming into the parlor. Even if the milkers are doing a really good job at cleaning the teats and the udders, it's a lot easier to clean a clean teat than it is to clean a dirty teat. And so the um, herd manager really needs to make sure that the bedding is well taken care of um, and replaced frequently, that the travel lanes are, are um, not getting a lot of manure accumulating in them, um, that the people who are pushing the cows understand how important it is to make sure that they, they try and keep the udders clean when they're doing that. Um, so that's an important role, I think, that the herd manager plays. I think another really important role is that they should be monitoring for subclinical mastitis, because obviously that's something that's not that easy to do in the parlor, um, especially when 
you know, the, the milkers are busy doing so much other stuff that he really can't do a CMT on, on all the cows by any means. So um, the herd manager or parlor manager really should be monitoring DHIA records for high somatic cell count cows. And then maybe strategically doing some California mastitis tests on some cows, such as fresh cows, cows that they suspect for other reasons might have subclinical mastitis, things like that. So again, that's another role I think that the herd manager or parlor manager can play. And then another role that I think is important is to, again, understand or, or show the milkers that they really are valued and they really are an important part of this whole process, right? It's not just as if you're a replaceable gadget um, on the farm here, but we really value the role you play and think it's important that you have the training that you need and they might offer financial incentives. So not every herd does that, but some do it and do it very successfully. Um, and I don't think it, it has to be done, but it's something to at least consider another way of showing that uh, you value the, the milkers and the role that they play in preventing and identifying uh, mastitis. I think this also ties in to um, the herd person or the farm manager's role. What data should be used to monitor for mastitis in the herd? And then how can those data be correlated to those practices in the parlor? Yeah, so this is, um, like you said, something that probably is done more at the manager level. But uh, the first thing I, I guess I, I should have stressed earlier too, is that if we do see any abnormal milk, if the milker does notice any abnormal milk, we need to make sure that gets reported and it just doesn't get overlooked, right? And so again, most herds have a fairly good system for that but there has to be some way to capture those data. So if we see some flakes and clots, even if they disappear at the next milking, it still should be noted that that cow had clinical mastitis um, at that time. So that, that's, I think, important for the milkers to capture that. But then the herd manager or parlor manager or herd owner um, needs to kind of take the big picture and, and say, okay, how do we look at these data on the, on the larger scale? And so bulk tank somatic cell count is certainly one thing that needs to be monitored regularly. Some people are getting that on every single pickup, and that's great. You can monitor that um, very easily that way and, and very consistently. But the problem with that is that it doesn't capture those cows that are not being put in the tank, right? So if we have a lot of cows in our treatment pen, or a lot of cows are holding out because, you know, they have a high somatic cell count, that's not really a true picture of what's going on in the herd. It's good to look at, but again, and not a, not a complete picture. So the DHA herd average somatic cell count is valuable to look at because it is going to, again, include more of the cows, right? So only cows that are really fresh might not get put in there or cows that are really sick, for example. But otherwise, that DHIA herd average somatic cell count will capture the vast majority of the herd. And so that's a good number to look at and to track, but that's only on a monthly basis compared to the bulk tank cell count. So it has a few drawbacks, but still very valuable to monitor. But even looking at those two things, one of the things that we can miss is the number of cows or percent of cows that are having clinical mastitis per month or subclinical mastitis per month. And so I think it's really valuable to monitor the percent of cows that have clinical mastitis, um, probably on a monthly basis is a good time frame to do that in. And if you're milking 100 cows, I'd really like to see less than four cows having clinical mastitis per month, ideally even less than that. Um, but that's kind of a number we can use as a bit of a benchmark. And so one cow per week, if you're milking 100 cows, that's about as much as I would really like to see. And so you can scale that up or down depending on how big, big your herd might be. But that's, that's valuable to monitor. And some herds are running much higher percentages than that, and some are doing better than that. Then the other thing we can do is, which gives us a little bit of a better picture of the subclinical mastitis, is look at the percent of new infections that are occurring every month based on the individual cow somatic cell counts. And so that's a cow that goes from being under 200,000 cells uh, per milliliter to over 200,000 cells per milliliter on DHIA. And again, that number 
um, varies a little bit, but I'd like to see that probably less than five cows, five percent of cows per month. So if, again, if you're milking 100 cows, um, I'd like to see less than five percent as a new infection, subclinical infection. Again, you have to be a little bit careful because if you have 100% of your cows infected, you can have a 0% new infection rate. So you might think it's really good, but you have to be careful not to get, fall into that trap. So you always have to interpret the data um, relative to, uh, to the big picture as well. So those are some of the things I think that some of the data that really can be looked at. And we have to realize that the vast majority of new infections happen at milking time. So whether they're clinical or subclinical, a lot of those infections happen at milking time. And so um, that's especially true for contagious mastitis, right? But the milkers also play an important role in trying to prevent environmental mastitis. So no matter which type of mastitis it is, if we see an increase in the bulk tank somatic cell count, the DHIA herd average cell count, the percent of cows with clinical mastitis, we really do need to look at the parlor um, as uh, some of the steps that we talked about earlier and, and how they might maybe are not being done as uh, effectively as they could be. Now, again, environmental management, as we all also hinted at, is, is important. So bedding uh, and managing the bedding and things like that is also important. But I'm all, always going to look into the parlor if I see um, problems with mastitis and, and other health. So one other quick thing, um, and, and I don't want to, this is not really talking about the parlor specifically, although it, obviously these are cows that are going through the parlor, but um, I think the infection prevalence in heifers at calving is something we can look at. Just recently, I was looking at a, a herd at their data. And again, we can end up with a pretty high level of infection in heifers at calving time. So those are girls that we probably should be doing a CMT on, uh, maybe when they come through the parlor for the first time or the second time. And again, that's, you know, not related to milking procedures, probably at that point, but more the environment. But again, that's a time when we want to look at those at those girls. You've talked about the CMT, and we've talked about data as tools, but are there any other tools that you recommend for aiding in mastitis management? So I think I've already alluded to this as well, but I think um, a milker's eyes and, and hands are probably very important, right? So just looking, um, sometimes we see, uh, you know, they're looking at their phone when they're stripping a cow a cow's quarters and yeah, they might be able to feel some flakes and clots, but you're not going to feel everything. And so they really have to look. Um, and so I think that's kind of obvious, but using your eyes and hands is really important. A strip cup, I think is valuable. Again, stripping onto the parlor floor is probably not too bad. In a tie stall herd, we definitely don't want to be stripping onto the floor um, underneath the cow, but a strip cup is going to be a little bit better of a way to be able to identify small flakes and clots and things like that in the milk. So I, I think a strip cup is valuable. And then again, a CMT paddle can be very useful. That might be in the treatment pen rather or the sort pen, you know, where you use the CMT paddle, um, but there's nothing wrong with having one in the parlor. So if you have a cow that has clinical mastitis in one quarter, um, you can quickly check the other quarters to see if they have an elevated cell count as well, because you might have subclinical mastitis in one of the other quarters. That's going to decrease your chances of treating that cow successfully. So um, the CMT paddle, I think, is another thing. Other than that, um, there are some other gadgets and, and new stuff that's coming out, some um, smartphone uh, devices that you can touch your, I think some of them might play a role and, and could be useful, but I don't think they're really critical for mastitis management. Do you have any tips for instilling the importance of good milking practices in the milkers? Like what might we use to motivate them? Yeah, so that's a really good question because, again, the people have to put the practices into play, right? And so we can have excellent practices, but if we don't have excellent people who are motivated, um, it gets to be really difficult to, to make it happen. So it's probably going to vary a little bit between milkers, just as with anybody doing any job, right? What motivates them to do a good job probably varies. 
as I indicated earlier, financial incentives might work. It doesn't work for everybody. And there are some drawbacks to doing them, but it might work pretty well if done correctly. So I think that's certainly one to consider is financial intent incentives. But I think a couple of other things are also really important. So I think if you as a parlor manager or herd manager or herd owner are ever in there milking, I think it's important or just in there at milking time, I think it's really important that you demonstrate that you follow good milking practices too, so that you model that so that you spend the time to do a dry wipe, you spend the time to strip that udder correctly, you spend the time to make sure that the prep lag time is correct, and you don't, for example, just jump into the middle of a prep procedure and mess the whole procedure up because that says to the milkers, well, it really isn't important that I follow the procedures because the parlor manager doesn't do it or the herd owner doesn't do it, so why should I? So I think modeling good behavior um, is really important. And then again, as we've already talked about, I think telling the milkers and showing the milkers that they're really important is also um, pretty critical to getting them to implement good milking practices, right? And so I see that in some herds where the milkers really respect the owner and it's obvious that the owner or the herd manager really respects the milkers. Whereas in other ones, it's kind of like, you know, we don't speak the same language. We don't really communicate. I just kind of yell and I point and I tell them this is what needs to be done. Um, I'm not sure that that really instills um, the desire in, in milkers to do the best that they can, um, if that's the situation. Um, so I think there's different things that we have to look at in terms of motivating milkers. But those are some of the big ones, I think. If a producer is struggling with mastitis issues in their parlor, what resources are available to help them? Yeah, that, that varies. Um, so hopefully their local veterinarian um, would be a good source of, of information and, and, and resources. Um, now, some veterinarians have more training and more experience in um, mastitis and, and utter health uh, management than others. And so that'll vary a little bit depending on the veterinarian, but that certainly would be a good source. And especially since if we're developing treatment protocols and things like that, we really need to have the vet involved. But again, your local veterinarian would be be a good source. And then again, it, it really is all over the board. So some milking equipment dealers will be very good and might have somebody on staff that can help with that, maybe even a veterinarian um, who can offer some advice and, and some suggestions that way. Um, there's different consultants that are out there that can do the same thing. And of course, you know, Penn State Extension, I think, is a, is a great resource um, for dealing with mastitis issues. And so we can do a couple of things. We have a number of people in the state that are uh, good at going out to the farm and evaluating milking procedures, looking at data, and then making some suggestions and recommendations um, involving the local veterinarian in that as necessary. But again, that's certainly a resource. And then there can be different labs that can be helpful. So we have the um, Pennsylvania Animal Diagnostic Lab here on campus, um, and that can be useful to um, figure out what's causing the mastitis, for example. Some veterinarians are doing that in the clinics, and some people are even doing that um, on their farm. But again, that's another resource that can be helpful. Our conversation today focused on managing mastitis in the parlor, but I know that you have a more encompassing view of mastitis management. <laughs> can you give us an overview of the other aspects that shouldn't be overlooked? So I think we touched on one of the big things already, but it really is the environment, right? The housing environment, especially, but even if the cows are going out to pasture, um, we can have a pretty significant risk to utter health if we have cows that are congregating under trees, especially in the summer. Um, if cows are walking through wet and muddy and, and manure filled areas, 
But in a free stall or in a tie stall, if the beds are dirty, that udder is going to be laying down on a very highly contaminated surface. That's not good because we end up with T-dens that end up with a very high bacteria count. And there is the risk that we get some bacteria up into that teat and between milkings as well. And so uh, we just did a, a webinar couple of days ago on this very topic where we talked about all the different factors that are important there, um, whether using an organic bedding or an inorganic bedding, um, whether you're using fresh bedding or recycled bedding, there's lots of different factors to consider. And one of the questions I frequently get is, you know, what about recycled manure solids? Should I use digested solids or composted solids or pressed solids, um, heat treated solids? What should I use? You know, that that's really important because that can affect um, utter health. And just a quick answer to that question, I guess, is that anytime you're using uh, manure solids, research has shown that you do run the, the higher risk of mastitis. Um, now, some herds can do a pretty good job with it and managing it, but you really want to keep it dry and you really want to replace it frequently and put lots of it in the beds and take lots of it out so that you don't end up with, with high bacteria counts in there. Um, so again, housing management uh, is, is really important, um, I believe. And then we need to look at other things as well. Nutrition can play a role in, in a cow's immune response and her ability to respond to an infection. Um, and I think you have a guest coming on uh, a different session that's going to be talking about that. But those are some of the things I think that are uh, pretty important in terms of mastitis management. You had to sum this up. What's your takeaway message about mastitis management that you'd like to share with our listeners? So I think kind of the, the take-home summary, which, which hopefully has come through here, I think is Understand, letting the employees that are involved in milking and managing cows understand that they have an important role in preventing mastitis and identifying mastitis. So that can even be the cow pushers, can be the people cleaning the beds. It's obviously the, the milkers in the parlor that all play a role in that. So I think it's important um, to make sure that they understand that and provide them with the appropriate training for them to understand their role in that. And then it's to also in my mind, show them not only have good procedures, but show them that you value them putting those procedures into place. Um, so I think that's really important. And then you need to have some good way to monitor if it's being effective, right? And so we need to have data that we're going to look at on a regular basis, probably a monthly basis um, at a minimum. Um, and we're going to try and evaluate whether or not we're being successful with our efforts. And if we're not, then we have to take a systematic approach and say, okay, what is it? Do, do we not have the right procedures? Do we not have the right people? Do we not have the correct equipment? Um, what is it that's causing that problem? So that'll be kind of my take home message. Thank you. Been a good discussion, I think, full of practical information today. I appreciate your time. Do you have any other thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? I guess one of the big things is if you think you're having a problem, make sure you reach out to somebody. Usually it's better to try and deal with something sooner rather than later. Um, if you end up with a problem and it continues to fester, if you will, then it tends to become worse rather than better. So reaching out to somebody sooner rather than later is, is probably a good thing. Um, and again, there are quite a few resources out there for you to take advantage of. In extension, we're willing to do what we can uh, to help you out. Thank you, Dr. Hoving, for talking to us today. And also thank you to all our listeners. If you have any further questions regarding this topic, you can email me at gdc3 at psu.edu. Don't forget to tune in next Tuesday when Carly Becker will discuss mastitis prevention and management in heifers with Dr. Amanda Stone from Mississippi State University. Yeah.